season of fasting, abstinence, and penance. And so as a preparation for the Holy Land, today we'll look at the answer to several questions. What's the point of fasting? What's the point of abstinence? How have Lenten requirements changed and what is required of us today? What virtue are we especially supposed to work on in Lent and why? And then we'll close with a few points to ponder. Okay, so first, what's the point of fasting? Where does this come from? When we commit a sin, our soul wills the evil, but typically our body also cooperates. Because of this, penance has to have two essential things. We have to have contrition of heart in our soul. We have to have mortification of our bodies. Fasting, eating less food than normal in reparation for sin and to appease the anger of God has been a key bodily mortification ever since the fall of Adam. And why is that? According to those great fathers and doctors of the church, St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory the Great, St. Jerome and St. John Chrysostom, the commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve was that they were supposed to abstain from one particular kind of food. They weren't supposed to eat the fruit from one kind of tree. But in their pride, they reached out and took of the fruit and ate it. And so the doctors point out that it's easy to see the symmetry between the first sin, which was not abstaining from food, and making reparation for sins by fasting, which is abstaining from food. Okay, so what's the relationship between meat and fasting? What difference does meat make? Well, there are two important aspects of fasting, spiritual writers point out. The first is depriving ourselves of some portion of our food, and the second is abstinence, which nowadays means depriving ourselves to some degree of meat. The practice of abstinence dates back to the days just after the flood, when God made meat a regular part of men's diets. Dom Garanger, the incorrupt Benedictine who founded the Slim Congregation, points out that since men's lives were weakened and shortened after the flood, in the providential plans of God, he permitted them to regularly eat meat to give them additional strength. And so, since the time of the flood, fasting has meant giving up meat to some degree because, as Dom Garanger points out, quote, this food was given to man by God out of condescension to his weakness and not as something absolutely essential for the maintenance of life. Its privation is essential to the very notion of fasting. Close quote. And most people probably realize that for many centuries, eggs and milk products were also abstained from, since they're also animal food. Even to this day, they're forbidden during Lent in many of the Eastern Catholic churches. And after all, that's why we give each other Easter eggs, because our ancestors couldn't eat eggs until Easter. Wait a minute. Did you say they couldn't eat eggs until Easter? I thought besides Ash Wednesday, abstinence only pertained to Fridays. In recent times, that's true. Abstinence has only pertained to Fridays. But in the olden days, that wasn't true. For roughly the first thousand years of the Latin church, the rite that we belong to, during Lent, one meal was allowed, except on Sundays. And at this one meal, meat, eggs, butter, cheese, milk, and wine were strictly prohibited. Those foods were also banned on Sundays. 
In other words, no meat, no eggs, no butter, no lard, no cheese, none at all were eaten at all during Lent, Sunday or not. Then, as if that wasn't tough enough, during Holy Week, they upped the ante. All they would eat during Holy Week was bread, salt, herbs, and water. And finally, as if that wasn't enough, this one meal per day wasn't allowed until after Vespers. And Vespers is said at sunset. So they didn't have any eggs in all of Lent since they had abstinence straight through until Easter. And they didn't eat except on Sundays before sunset. Then in the 10th century, things began to get very liberal. The meal time, which used to be after sunset, crept down to 3 o'clock. How did this happen? What happened is the time for the Office of Vespers got moved. I have to make a small digression here to explain this point. See, all clerics like myself and the deacon and religious have a little book that we have to say every day. It's called the Divine Office, and it's, it's Psalms and Prayer. It's broken down. We, say, we have eight different times a day we say these prayers. That's that little book we pack on. It's called a breviary. Now, for example, the, the, our sext is traditionally prayed at the middle of the day. Known is set at 3 o'clock. Vespers is set at 6 o'clock or sunset. Okay, sext is 12. Known is 3. Vespers is 6. Now, what happened in the 10th century is they allowed the office of known to be recited as soon as they were done saying sext, which is the middle of the day. That's where we get the word noon. Noon just is known, slid down from 3 o'clock until midday. That's what it means midday now instead of 3 o'clock. Now, Lent fast couldn't be broken until after Vespers, so at a gradual process, Vespers crept earlier and earlier to the, in the day until finally by the 14th century, Vespers could be said in the middle of the day during Lent. And since Vespers were already said around noon, that meant that the mealtime had now crept down to midday. Okay, shortly after this development, the practice of taking a small bit of food in the evening called a collation began to gain ground. Finally, about 200 years ago, the custom of taking a small piece of bread, a crust of bread, and some coffee in the morning was introduced. Then gradually, over time, the Holy See allowed meat to be eaten during Lent, but at first only on Sundays. Then gradually they allowed it on two weekdays, then three, then four, then five. In the U.S. in the early 1900s during Lent, the second and last Saturdays were days of abstinence, all the Wednesdays and Fridays were also days of abstinence. And of course, all the weekdays were days of fasting. Now keep in mind, there's other days of fasting and abstinence during the year, but we're just talking about Lent right now. Finally, before 1967, when the current Lenten rules came into effect, Lent had been reduced to abstinence on Ash Wednesday and all the Fridays, and then fasting on all the weekdays, excepting, of course, the Feast of the Annunciation. Okay, so that's quite a change. But the whole point of Lent is, fa is of fasting and abstinence is still making reparation for sin, isn't it? No, that's not the only point. That's an important point, but it's not the only point. One of the most important fruits of a good land is growth in the virtue of temperance. Now, we've already taken a fairly detailed look at temperance, but it wouldn't hurt to have a short review of why we need temperance and what it is that it does for us. Remember that before the fall, Adam had the gift of integrity. The gift of integrity gave him complete and perfect control over his emotions and passions. For example, imagine that Adam looked over and saw Eve doing something that warranted anger. He would have got just exactly, he would have first decided to be angry, 
then he would have been exactly as angry as was reasonable for exactly as long as was reasonable, and then he would have just instantly stopped being angry, calmed down instantly. Of course, that's something none of us have any experience with. The gift of integrity gave Adam perfect control over his passions. Now, when he committed the original sin, one of the consequences was the loss of this gift of integrity. Take the passion of anger, for example. Each one of us can ask himself, have I ever been angry for no particular reason? Have I ever been more angry than the situation called for? Have I ever had a hard time calming down? You can't just decide, okay, anger, that'll be enough for now. It goes away, can you? Why not? Because, thank you very much, Adam, you and I, none of us, have the gift of integrity. We don't have perfect and complete control over our passions. And since we don't, unlike Adam before the fall, we can get led around by our passions and emotions if we let them. We've got to be careful. And hopefully we all remember that $4 word that describes our curtain condition. It's concupiscence. Concupiscence means the rebellion of our sense appetites. Like our passions and our emotions, it's a rebellion against the rule of right reason. And guess what? If our sense appetites, like hunger or thirst, for example, or our passions like anger, are in rebellion against right reason, that means that instead of being led by reason, we can easily be led by our passions and by our appetites. And every single one of us here knows us which way they'll lead us. That's the whole problem with concupiscence. It inclines us strongly towards sin. Thanks a lot, Adam. Okay, so here we are. None of us have the gift of integrity. We're all suffering from this inclination towards sin called concupiscence. Now, if that isn't bad enough, the society we live in keeps us constantly bathed in appeals to our concupiscence like no culture in the history of the world. Just think of all the things that are paraded before our, our senses at all times. This is in spite of the fact that it's been known since ancient times by the pagans, the Jews, all the fathers, doctors, and saints of the Catholic Church. They all teach exactly the same thing. They teach that it's a constant battle for any man to conquer his passions and to bring them under the rule of right reason. And to live a life of virtue, we have to have our passions in submission. So we've only got two choices. Either our passions serve us, or we serve our passions. That's the difference, finally, between being saved and being damned. How do we control our passions? With a power in our soul, a virtue called temperance. It governs our rebellious sense appetites by controlling our desires for sensitive pleasures. It's the virtue that does battle with concupiscence. Since it governs our sense appetites, that means it governs our desires for food and drink, for procreation, and revenge. Temperance is a virtue that gives us control over three of the deadly sins, over gluttony, lust, and anger. Gluttony, lust, and anger. Let's get practical. How can we grow in temperance? St. Andrew Avellini points out that if we want to advance to perfection this way, we have to mortify our appetite. St. Francis de Sales says, to grow in temperance, we do this by eating to live, but not living to eat. So we can grow in temperance by mortifying our appetite for food and drink. And that's why we have Lent. And when we're fasting, so we're not only making reparation for our sins, we're also growing in temperance. We're conquering our concupiscence. We're growing in temperance so we can trample on all the temptations that surround us. 
Okay. So now we get some idea of the importance of fasting and abstinence in the tradition of the church. I'll mention in passing two other ancient practices of Lent related to temperance. First is that all theaters were closed. And second, the practice of forbidding the solemnization of marriages during Lent reminds us that in the old days, continency used to be mandatory for all. Okay, so much for history. Let's look at the current legislation of the church, which binds each one of us here under the pain of mortal sin. All those who are 14 on up have to abstain from meat on Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and all six of the Fridays of Lent. All those from 18 to 60 have to fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Again, all those who are 14 on up have to abstain from meat on Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, and all the Fridays of Lent. All those from 18 to 60 have to fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, and this binds under the pain of mortal sin. I'll make some closing observations. I'm always struck when I read old books about how Catholics used to make fun of the Mohammedans as being a bunch of effeminate sissies and a wimpy, effete religion. But just compare one of the five pillars of their religion, Ramadan, their 29-day-long fast, in which between sunrise and sunset they observe continence and abstain from eating and drinking. The serious ones won't even swallow their spit till after sunset. Just compare that to our modern land. They haven't changed a lick. Boy, we sure have. Number two. We have to keep the current Lent rules. There's no doubt about that. But let's get serious. To get into heaven, you have to do penance. You don't have to kill yourself, but you have to do penance. Period. God said, unless you do penance, you shall surely perish. It's not optional. And the bar hasn't been lowered. Furthermore, to get into heaven, you have to have the virtue of temperance. That's not optional. And the bar hasn't been lowered. Our current regime is not going to give you the virtue. You have to set the standards yourself. Let's face it, barring an absolute miracle, there's absolutely no way that any one of us can develop the virtue of temperance if our Lenten fasting and abstinence amounts to two days of fasting and abstinence and six days six Fridays of simple abstinence. It just ain't going to happen. There's no way. You've got to set the standards higher. Third observation. As Dom Guernsey wrote almost 140 years ago, quote, How few Christians do we meet who are strict observers of Lent, even in its present mild form? This is 140 years ago. How few Christians do we meet who are strict observers of Lent, even in its present mild form? And must there not result from this ever-growing spirit of immortification a general effeminacy of character which will lead, at last, to frightful social disorders? Those nations among whose people the spirit and practice of penetration are keeping against themselves the wrath of God and provoking His justice to destroy them by one or other of these scourges, either civil discord or conquest. And it isn't just like every thinking mind. The observance of the Lord's Day on the one hand, the inobservance of days of penance and fasting on the other. 
word of God is unmistakable. Unless we do penance, we shall perish. Close quote. Fourth and last. Something each one of us really needs to meditate on. In an encyclical in 1941, Pope Benedict XIV stated, quote, The observance of Lent is the very badge of Christian warfare. By it, we prove ourselves to not be the enemies of the cross of Christ. By it, we avert the scourges of divine justice. By it, we get strength against the princes of darkness, for it shields us with heavenly help. Should mankind grow remiss in their observance of Lent, it will be a detriment to God's glory, a disgrace to the Catholic religion, and a danger to Christian souls. Neither can it be doubted that such negligence would become the source of misery to the world, a source of public calamity, and a source of private woe. Close quote, the victor of Christ, Benedict Fourteenth. The observance of Lent is the very badge of Christian warfare. By it we prove ourselves not to be the enemies of the cross of Christ. By it we avert the scourges of divine justice. We gain strength against the princes of darkness. Should mankind grow remiss in this observance, it would be a detriment to God's glory, a disgrace to our holy religion, and a danger to our souls. Neither can it be doubted it would become a source of misery to the world, a source of public calamity and private woe. By Lent, we prove ourselves not to be enemies of the cross of Christ. If you love our Lord, you have the next seven weeks to prove it.